we are joining a writer named John on a voyage to find life. John tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, that he came to give life, and then in John 10.10, he says that life is to be an abundant life, a full life, a satisfying life, a life that is full of grace and truth. And John gives us some lights along the shoreway in this journey, and yet at the same time, we have to face the space often between where we are and the arrival on shore. And so we ask ourselves the question, how do we get to the destination? We need to follow the light that Jesus has come to give and face that space between us and the dilemmas that we often face in the course of our life. But John gives us some clues along the way, and he calls them signs. And there are seven signs in the Gospel of John. We've looked at a couple of them as we have been talking about mysticism being that mysterious moment which involves encounters and experiences and events that not only create memories, but they create opportunities for growth and learning and meaning. And that can transcend any given point in time and those are the things that we draw upon often as we look back over the course of our life. So today we're going to take a look at John chapter 6, and it's a lengthy passage, and it's a very interesting passage because it has two signs in it. We have been talking about these mystical moments, and we've already looked at changing the water to wine, healing the ro royal official's son, healing the paralytic, and today, you'll notice, two of them are couched in the same uh, chapter, feeding the multitudes and walking on water. And then it will close off with healing of a blind man. We'll look at that next week. And then two weeks from today, we'll talk about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. These are what John calls signs. These are something that point to something else. They are a window into the heart of God. And in the Gospel of John, what we find him doing is sometimes Old Testament allusions to something that has come prior. And so what I've been trying to do is show you the interconnection a little bit between some of these things, but we're given a new element today as well, because there's these seven statements from Jesus that he makes about himself. And the first one is in this chapter, I am the bread of life. And then there are six more later in the Gospel of John. So in chapters 1 through 12, you have these seven signs that kind of become a prelude to seven statements that he's going to make about himself. And we've been trying to connect these things using this graphic between Mary asking him to change water to wine, his interview with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, and a healing of a Gentile official's son. And last week we talked about a man who had been crippled for 38 years. But there's these tensions that are growing among the Jewish leaders of the day. And that begins when he cleanses the temple, when he begins to have this relationship with a Samaritan woman. And we see last week that he breaks the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath, which is considered a no-no. Well, since I've run out of space on this slide, I decided to use a different type of graphic to show you, and this might not be any better in helping you understand, 
but it will show you that John couches one thing inside another thing. And it's kind of like a cocoon. So you go, oh boy, that looks too complicated. Let me explain it to you. So the symbolism in John's gospel are these seven signs to life. And this is what we've already talked about, water to wine. We talked a little bit about the healing of the official son and the paralytic. And then today, the feeding of the multitude and walking on water, we've already talked about some of the tensions that causes. But couched within these signs are these seven statements. I'm the bread of life, light of the world, the gate, the good shepherd, resurrection and the light, the way, truth, and the life, and the true vine. But you'll see in red what's happening in the Gospel of John is each opposition to Jesus is getting more intense. Every time he does something, it grows. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, they are already plotting to murder Jesus. They are plotting to get rid of this one who is upsetting the status quo, upsetting uh, their, their position and power. So having said that, the last four signs are kind of couched in some comments as well. He feeds the 5,000 and that's where he says, I'm the bread of life. But when he walks on water, he says to them, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Next week, we'll see the healing of the blind man where he says, I'm the light of the world. And when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So John's gospel is not straightforward history. It's symbolism. And it uses different ways of communicating. And one of the things that he does in communicating is use a lot of Old Testament allusions. So this story about the feeding of the 5,000 has similar parallels in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament story tells us about the nation of Israel moving out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, they are in the wilderness for almost 40 years. And it is there they will be fed manna from heaven each and every day, just enough that they need, not more, not less. And the story then kind of becomes the backdrop to the feeding of the 5,000. There's another thing as well uh, that's a similar parallel found in 1 Kings 17, and it's the story of Elijah, where he is able to feed a starving woman by multiplying the food as well. So there's these two Old Testament backdrops to this particular story and miracle. And I think the readers, or at least the hearers of Jesus, would be familiar with these two episodes, and that would give significant importance to this early Christian community. This is one of the last of the Old Testament books that is written. It's late in the first century, and the Johannine community, those who were followers of John, are trying to make a go of it. And how will they continue to persevere? Well, what we're going to find is that they will need some reassurance. And so these stories are a way of showing God's faithfulness one generation to the next. Now, what's interesting about the feeding of the multitudes is that it occurs 
in all four Gospels. This is one of those stories that occurs in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it's not told the same way. Fascinating. Here in John chapter 5, uh, chapter 6, what we have is the feeding of 5,000. And there are 12 basketfuls that are left over after he feeds the 5,000. If you were to turn uh, to Mark, Mark says that he feeds 4,000 and there are seven basketfuls that are left over. What's going on here? Each gospel writer is trying to communicate something to a particular audience and they use it accordingly. The two signs that we look at in John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water, are couched within each other as a technique. And they're connected to each other to communicate a very important point, that Jesus is the new Moses. So listen to the text. John 6 verse 1 says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples, and the Jewish Passover was near. So there's all these red lights that are blinking on the dashboard. Oh my goodness. This story resembles the feeding of manna to the Israelites in the wilderness. He goes up on a mountainside, just like Moses went up to Mount Sinai. He is an individual that does this during the time of Passover. So the symbolism here is something very important. It's telling us that Jesus is kind of rest, restoring Judaism, and what he is doing is expanding upon it with these signs. The text goes on and says, when Jesus looked up and saw a crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him and said, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have one bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. So the gospel writer is telling us this is just head count of men. So probably there are children and women there as well could be much more. Jesus then took loaves, gave thanks, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five bar barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. They're beginning to connect all these things from the Old Testament, that there is a prophet in the likeness of Moses that's going to come. And they're beginning to associate that with Jesus. What's interesting is Andrew and Philip are singled out of the 12 disciples. Now, if you 
were to read the beginning of the Gospel of John, what you'd find in chapter 1 is that Andrew meets Jesus, and then he runs to tell his brother Peter, and he says this in verse 41 of chapter 1, we have found the Messiah. Then Philip comes into the spotlight, and he is convinced that Jesus is someone special, and he tells his brother Nathaniel, verse 45 of that chapter, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Do you see all these connections going on? There is the Passover. There's this imagery from the Old Testament, and there are 12 basketfuls left over. Not three, not six, not eight, 12. Very symbolic, for he has 12 disciples, and the disciples are the ones that are distributing this food for the soul as well as the body to those who are seated. Do you see the imagery there? They're going to carry on Jesus' work long after he is gone. That's their role. And each disciple has their own story to tell in how they go into different parts of the world, at least the Roman Empire at that time, and begin sharing the good news about the one who is the Messiah, the one who Moses talked about. The context is important here, though. It's Passover, the most important of all the celebration festivals of the Jewish people because it celebrates that exodus from Egypt and because there is a lamb that was slain that freed the people when they came out of Egypt and Jesus, we know, is going to be slain as the lamb of God. And so two things are happening in this first story. The people are hungry, and the disciples are clueless. In other words, the people, they're following Jesus because of all these miracles of healing that he's performing, and yet they didn't plan to stay as long as they did. They did not bring a lunch. They didn't bring anything to eat. They didn't bring any water to drink. And so Jesus tells Philip and Andrew and the other disciples, give them something to eat. Now, can you imagine? They are individuals that are overwhelmed in the moment, right? How are you going to turn five loaves of bread and two fish into enough for everyone to have something to eat? And so what happens is he has all the people sit down, and as they sit down, what happens is he begins to give thanks to God and multiply that which the people need. The disciples, I truly believe, don't fully understand how this is going to happen. Neither do I. How did this bread multiply? Did it multiply in the basket as they were taking it out? How did they, how did they see this happening? And what we find is that these disciples are trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And what will happen is after this story, after the uh, interlude of walking on water, it comes back and it says this, when Jesus meets his disciples on the lake again, uh, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. 
Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Don't work for food that spoils. That's an allusion back to the Old Testament. You know, when the disciples, I mean the Israelites went out each morning and gathered this thing called manna. It's kind of a flaky bread. And the, the name manna means, what is this? <laughs> what is it? And it would only last for a day. If people tried to store it, it would spoil. And each day was a dependence upon God to provide what was needed for that day. The same is true with water in the wilderness. They needed to depend on a day-to-day -day basis. Later in this chapter, Jesus will then talk about being the bread of life and that this bread that has come down from heaven will live forever. It doesn't spoil. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, he says. This is a substance that will continue to help you not only to survive, but to help you to thrive as well. Now, when we associate this type of miracle with wooden literalism, I think we miss all kinds of things. The feeding of the 5,000 becomes a picture of a religion gone bad, a religion that became stale, a religion that needed to be changed. And so Jesus now says, I'm the bread of life. Feed on me and you will continue to live. I imagine that some of these things was beyond comprehension. Think about just the feeding of the 5,000 in the Old, uh, I mean the feeding of the Israelites in the Old Testament. If they ate manna for almost 40 years, that's 14,600 days of the same thing. 14,600 days of the same thing. So how many ways can you eat manna? They ate raw manna, boiled manna, baked manna, ground manna, manna moussaka, manna marmalade, manna meatloaf, <laughs> right? I just, I, I, all these different ways of eating manna. Uh, but it is a symbol, though, of God's care for them. And that's what they needed to feed on. And that's the point for us. You know, sometimes in life, we find ourselves in a wilderness, don't we? And sometimes in life, we're just starving in our spirit. And what we need is the same thing. We need God to step in and to help us. We need God to step in and provide for us. We need God to show us a way to feed off the life of Jesus himself. You know, when people heard Jesus say, eat my flesh, they could take that very grotesquely, couldn't they? Man, ugh. what is this, cannibalism? No, 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 that's all symbolism, right? Feed off of me, learn from me, he would tell his disciples. And so, how are they doing on that? Well, that's where the walking on water comes in. So, the day is over, and what happens is it now is turning dark. And I read for you a moment ago that his disciples go down to the lake, they get into a boat, and they're going to go across the lake back to Capernaum. That's kind of like home base for Jesus in the region of Galilee to the north. And so as they head off to a place called Capernaum, Jesus is left behind. 
And as they're out on the lake, a storm comes up. And as the storm comes up, they are very frightened. And so what happens now is, are we going to lose our life? Are we going to be capsized? What's going to happen? And it's at that moment Jesus comes walking on the water and they recognize him. In other accounts of the walking on water, we're told that Peter dives off the edge of the boat and says, teach me to walk as well. The text says that as long as Peter had his eyes on the Lord, he was able to uh, do that. But the minute he took his eyes off the Lord, he began to doubt himself and began to sink. All of this has this symbolic element to it of what happens often in life. When we keep our eyes on God, he'll give us the strength in those moments. He'll provide what we need. And yet when we keep take our eyes off of God, so many times what we find is that we kind of sink into the dilemma we find ourselves in. And so what we find taking place in the text here is this story that seems to be out of place. You would think if you read chapter 6 that the story of the feeding of the 5,000 would just go into this dialogue about Jesus being the bread of life. But it's interrupted, which is fascinating. It is interrupted intentionally by John to tell us that at times we will be tested. Now what I find interesting here is the idea of darkness. They got into the boat and the waters grew rough, but the emphasis, I think, in this particular paragraph, by now it was dark. Think about darkness for a moment. All the bad things in life happen in the dark, at least we think so, right? When we can't see things, when we can't control things, when there are things that are lurking behind corners, all happens in the dark, and yet we're conditioned by that. There are many wonderful things that can happen in the dark. In fact, Isaiah chapter 45 verse 3 says, the darkness holds treasures. In other words, we sometimes have to reimagine our concept of darkness. We struggle to see in the dark, but when you wake up in the middle of the night, isn't it fascinating that you can see things that you can't see when the lights are on? I mean, at the minute your lights are turned on, your pupils dilate, and then you turn those lights back off, you can't see a thing, right? It's all dark. But when you wake up in the middle of the night, you can open your eyes and you can actually make things out, right? Fascinating dynamic. And sometimes in the dark, we're able to see some things that we're not able to see in the light because the artificial light around us kind of hides things from us. Sometimes outside when the sun is bright, you know, we're blinded by that. We don't observe certain things maybe that we could see if there's a little bit of overcast. Maybe we need to reimagine the idea of darkness. And I think maybe that's the point of the walking on water because Jesus will come and tell his disciples, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Sometimes darkness is used to hide. People often hide in the dark. But isn't it true that many times darkness is where we hide our own fears, our failures, our frustrations, those type of things? Barbara Brown Taylor, 
in one of her books, talks about lunar spirituality. That's a fascinating comment, lunar spirituality. You know, solar spirituality is that idea of everything being bright and cheery. The life isn't like that, right? Lunar spirituality is when we have to kind of see in the dark and we have to use the light of the moon rather than the light of the sun. And she talks in this book about how we go through cycles many times, much like the moon. The moon is different almost every single night, isn't it? You go out and you look at it, and sometimes it's bright, and it's overwhelming, and it's big, and other times it's hidden, and other times it's a crescent, and sometimes it is waning, and sometimes it's a new moon. And I think that's true in our life, that when we're out in the middle of the boat and darkness is surrounding us, it's not always a full moon that gives to us a sign or a compass on the way to go. Sometimes we have to wait it out a little bit. And sometimes we need that darkness as much as we need the light to be able to see things a little bit clearer. When we've gone through some dark times and when we've rode upon some rough waters, it's only as we look back that sometimes we see, I don't think I could have learned something any other way than kind of riding out the storm. And none of us like that, right? None of us like the wind and the storm that we're going through at any given moment. But sometimes when we look back upon it, what we find is that maybe we were afraid for nothing, right? Maybe we worried and were full of anxiety simply because we didn't have the capacity to trust in the moment that God is still in control. There will be times in our lives when we will experience many of the same things that the disciples are going through in this context here. Sometimes what we will find is that we're hungry and we're starving and we're malnourished and we need something of substance to help us to get through what we're going through. And the story is telling us Jesus provides enough and even that which is left over for others. And then in the storm, when we're tossed to and fro by the wind and by the waves, many times we are fearful that something's going to happen, fully unaware that God is still with us, that Jesus is still present. Don't be afraid. I'm there with you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to climb into your boat. I'm going to help you through this tough time. So I think these two miracles are quite interesting that they are joined together because I think the symbolism is that the bread of God, Jesus, is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And that's what he means by saying, I'm the bread of life. And sometimes we might not fully understand what he's trying to communicate to us. But when we've gone through those dry times, sometimes God gives to us just what we need in the moment to sustain us. And when we go through the darkness, sometimes God stills the storm at just the right time. So, the end of chapter 6, this is how Jesus closes off this story. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, 
you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Isn't that great? I am the bread of life, he says. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. And he's already beginning to give to us a, a, uh, a preview or a prequel to this last statement. I am the resurrection and the life. He sets it up here, but then it is fulfilled not only through the raising of Lazarus from the dead, but he talks to the two sisters of Lazarus. We'll talk about that in two weeks. And he says to them, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says to them, you know, don't fear about your brother. And he, he goes to the side of the tomb. We'll talk about this in more detail. And even then, Jesus weeps. He's overwhelmed with emotion because he's lost one of his best friends. And then he raises him. And then he takes the, the linen strips off of Lazarus. And they are reunited. Isn't that a great picture? Now, I mentioned at the beginning that we're offering our condolences to Annie on the loss of her grandpa. But this is not the end. There is reunion and resurrection there is the opportunity to remember that during the dry times when we are thirsty, Jesus will provide water to help us through. And when we find ourselves in the storm, in the chaos of grief, in the chaos of heartache, that he is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. In the meantime, though, next week we're going to talk about how many times this man who was blind from birth represents how we're unable to see some of those promises that we all need in the course of our life. Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. So as you look at this development in chapter 6, it's a wonderful chapter. And then it closes off like this. On hearing it, many of Jesus' disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this because they couldn't understand fully the symbolism of Jesus. Jesus says, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. But he went on to say this, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. In other words, God is always massaging the heart for us to find new hope. And from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Not the twelve, but some of those who were on the outskirts, because they just wanted him to continue to provide bread on a daily basis. And then Jesus turns to his 12 and he says, do you want to leave me too? And Simon Peter speaks up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
That's what these two stories are trying to communicate. And so um, we're going to sing. If you, anybody want to kind of tap uh, Corey to come on over, we're going to close with a song, Because He Lives. This is a song that c- communicates this hope of resurrection which we anticipate. And it's kind of couched in this chapter, chapter 6, where it's primarily about the bread of life, but it is also about what awaits us when we think about what we need in the moment. I think all of us need that hope. We all need to know that God is with us even in the dark times. We all need to know that God will walk with us in the course of everyday life amidst the storms and He will feed us as He needs to feed us so that we will have have hope for this day. And I think that's what this song, because He lives, this uh, very old song that has been around for many years, I think it was written by uh, the Gaithers, and it is a song that reminds us that because he lives, we too shall live. Stand, and let's sing together, please.
May God's grace and peace rest upon you, and may the hope of Him being the bread of life, and being the light of the world, and being the resurrection and the life, sustain you this day and into the week ahead, and give to you hope that cannot be robbed or taken away, give to you hope that continues to rise within your soul, that enables you to do more than you could ever possibly think that you could do on your own. May you trust your next step. May you trust the next day because Jesus is already waiting for us there. And it's in the dark sometimes that we see his outline. It's in the dark sometimes we hear his promise. Do not be afraid. We thank you, Lord, for these promises we hold in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, everyone.